Join me as we stand together and read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it is always useful to have one open and in front of you as we study God's Word together. So I invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles uh, that should be nearby and you'll find this morning's text on page 14. If you happen to be new to us here at Redeemer, it is our normal uh, practice and joy on the Lord's Day mornings to just systematically work through books of the Bible. And for the last several months, we've been going through this first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we come this morning to chapter 20. And so we want to study all 18 verses together. Let me thus read them in your hearing and pray for our time, and then we will begin together. So let us hear now as... Our God of faithfulness speaks to us once again through his word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done these things to me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it. Because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do me, that every place to which we come say of me, He is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And he also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of faithfulness to a faithless people. As we see once again your power of protection, the kind refuge that is your name and is your strength that you work on behalf for your people this morning. We pray that you would grow our faith and our fear in you, that you would increase our delight in your covenant grace that you have given to us in the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, give us wisdom, we pray, as we want to study these truths and apply it according to the Spirit at work within us. Fill us with the Spirit that we might walk in obedience, faith, and repentance from this text. Fill me with the Spirit that I might speak rightly, as you say I must, with clarity and courage. Sustain my voice that you might be proclaimed as the God who is due all glory and honor alone. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more infamous incidents in recent baseball memory came on October 14th, 2003. It was game six of the National League Championship Series between the Chicago Cubs and the Florida Marlins. It was at Wrigley Field in Chicago, the top of the eighth inning. The Cubs were up three to nothing with one out. A batter by the name of Luis Castillo was at the plate. He popped up along the third baseline and left fielder for the Cubs. Moise Alou began to track it down and every person in the stadium said, here comes the second out. We're only four outs now away from our first National League pennant since 1945. And then right as Moise Alou gets to the wall, reaches up to grab this sure second out. You might know the story. Another person reaches out by the name of Steve Bartman, a fan along the line, interrupts the play. The out doesn't come. I was watching this game in a hotel room with several soccer teammates, one of whom is from Chicago, is a lifelong Cubs fan, and he said, as that ball fell to the ground, not in Alou's glove, he said, here we go again. <laughs> and sure enough, there they went again. The Cubs proceeded to lose that game 8-3. to three. They lost game seven the next day, and the curse of the billy goat continued in Chicago. And we come to a text this morning that is also about this unsuspecting individual. Genesis 20 is a text that is also about something of a pivotal moment in time. It's a text that we come to also this morning, and in some ways want to cry out, here we go again. Because if you know the story of Genesis, as I read the passage, there might have been a sense of deja vu when you saw what's going on in chapter 20. You think, oh, I've seen that before. The characters were somewhat different, but it's the same situation and scene, isn't it? Back in the end of chapter 12, we saw Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham and Sarah go about this deceptive scheme. It just was in the land of Egypt. She's my sister, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh takes Sarai at the time for himself, and the promise is put in peril. We saw how God delivered his people in this kind of mini exodus event out of Egypt. And along the way, they plundered the Egyptians and got quite rich, this family of promise in Genesis 12. And we said the point was so many months ago, God protects his promise. 
And it genuinely is that simple once again this morning. God protects his promise again. But it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because we find out in this passage not only that God protects his promise. We have a better idea, according to Genesis 20, of how he often protects his promise. How he wields his sovereign strength and his all-wise power for the good of his people that his covenant promise might come to pass in their life. I suppose some of you might be sitting in here this morning and you might be wondering if God really is going to protect his promise that he made towards you. Maybe it's less a question of his willingness, but his ability. Can he actually protect the promise that he has made to me and my children? Well, we're going to see, yes, he does protect his promise. And we'll see it in three different ways. I've just written three simple words to kind of mark off the movements of the passage. The first word is deception. second word is protection. And the third word is intercession. And look as we see Abraham's deception begin in verse 1. We get something of the geographical context as the author says, From there Abraham journeyed. Now students, just pause right there. Where is the there? Where is he coming from? Well, you might remember last time we saw Abraham, if you just kind of look back a few paragraphs, is Genesis chapter 19, verse 27 through 29. It's there that Abraham rose early in the morning and he went to a hillside place. Genesis 18 tells us was Mamre near Hebron, which would have been probably about a thousand feet in the air above Sodom and Gomorrah. Some scholars say it's as high as 4,000 feet above Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were, it was there early in the morning. Abraham looks down as God does what? Rains hell down from heaven. Consumes the city of Sodom, the city of Gomorrah, all the cities in the valley, and Abraham is there watching. And we said last week it was this unrivaled picture of God's judgment on sin. Jesus, even subsequently in his ministry, will say, if you want to know what the second coming of the Son of Man is like, just look at the story of God's judgment on Sodom. Because the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be one of salvation through judgment. And it's from there, you'll notice as verse 1 continues, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now, kids, you might remember that Abraham's identity was that of a pilgrim. He was a sojourner. He was a wanderer. He didn't have a permanent home. He's just pitching his tent here and there throughout the promised land, moving around along the way in his lifetime, and he's made it to this area called Gerar. Now, we don't know exactly where Gerar was at this time, but we do know what Gerar was because chapter 26 tells us it was the land of the Philistines. Now, kids, maybe you know your Old Testament stories well enough. Were Philistines friends or enemies of God's people? Well, certainly as the narrative of the Old Testament continues, they are enemies of God's people, most famously embodied in that giant named Goliath. So I think we're right to read into this text something of a dangerous tone, something of an ominous air of danger is on the way because it's clear that Abraham thought as much. Look what he does in this scheme of deception in verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now you need to know something of the ancient customs like we said back in Genesis chapter 12 if you're going to interpret this scene rightly. What Abraham is doing here is employing a tactic typical for his time. 
It was normal in the ancient world, even expected in the ancient world, that brothers were the protectors of their sisters. When it came to someone wanting to marry the sister, it belonged to the brother to negotiate the terms of the marriage. It belonged to the brother to bargain with the prospective groom about how the families were going to relate to one another. It was actually quite common, even at that time in the ancient culture, if you were sojourning in a land and your wife was beautiful like Sarah was. But you often had reason to think that the existing leader in that land would kill you in order to take your wife. Abraham says as much, if you notice down in verse 11, that's what he thinks is getting ready to happen. So, what was more common in that time is you would have a brother come along and say, well, let me negotiate you with the terms for my sister. And what Abraham is doing here is he's stalling for time. He's trying to protect his family, which certainly numbered, including servants and their children, north of a thousand people in this moment in the tents of Abraham. And if Abraham's gone, they're, of course, going to be gone as well. And, and the typical tactic for the time, what he's doing is trying to stall for time that he might figure out a way to negotiate with Abimelech. He might figure out a way to protect his family along the way. And, of course, it's true that she is, in fact, his sister, which was more common in that time than, of course, it's allowed later on in the Old Testament, even if she is the half-sister. Yet, like it was in Genesis 11, this worldly, accepted, deceptive scheme goes awry quite quickly, doesn't it? Look at verse 2 as it ends. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent... It doesn't say he negotiated with Abraham. It doesn't say that he bargained with Abraham. It doesn't say he convened with Abraham. What does it say? He took Sarah. And you would have to understand in that custom, in those customs and in that culture... Abraham would have probably thought to himself, oh no, that's not what I was intending. And I wonder how often it is that even in your own life, accepted cultural schemes don't go as you thought they would go. The world's wisdom doesn't always work out the way it's supposed to. The world's wares don't always deliver like they say they're going to deliver. And you want to know in this moment that there is a spiritual reality going on in the text because this is that ancient serpent of old, Satan, trying to devour the promise. Because notice what's happened just by simply Abimelech taking Sarah. What Satan has been able to do through what we're getting ready to find out is the sinful actions of Abimelech calling into question the promise made in the covenant to Abraham, for example. He's calling to question the integrity of God's promise. Can God really protect his people when a king comes along and says, I'll just take one whenever I want? Not just the integrity of the promise, the purity of Sarah, who's the queen of the promise. Not just the purity of Sarah, but of course most pointedly at this point in Genesis is the legitimacy of the seed of promise. Because if you kind of understand the timeline of what's going on in Genesis, it was only two chapters back in Genesis 18 that the Lord arrived. And you remember, he told Abraham, I'm going to come back next year, 12 months from now. And what are you going to have? A child. And depending on how you kind of work the timeline on its way into Genesis 18, one of two things has happened. Abimelech has taken Sarah, who has just conceived the promised child, or is soon to conceive the promised child, so that everyone around this family of promise will wonder whose child is it, really. So Abraham's deception leads necessarily to God's protection in verse 13 through 16. 
Earlier this week, our little three-year-old daughter, Sarah, came to me after breakfast and said, Daddy, I had a dream last night. And I thought to myself, this will be interesting. (laughs) And sure enough, it was interesting. But written across her face was certainty in the details of the dream. And I thought to myself, she did not get that from me. I'm one of those people, if I dream, the dream is gone seconds after I open my eyes. Abimelech is much more like Sarah, isn't he? As God appears to him in a dream and he's confronted stunningly with the justice of God. Notice how verse 3 begins, but God... We've mentioned that often throughout our time together here at Redeemer that there's no conjunction better than but. This gospel phrase throughout scripture, but God intervening, jumping into the scene to protect his people. What's he going to do this time? Well, he speaks to Abimelech in a dream and says, notice as verse 3 continues, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, you want to understand, in this pagan culture in the ancient Near Eastern world, adultery, interestingly enough, was called the great sin. It was said to bring something like anarchy upon a society if it went unchecked. God is eventually going to use this language of great sin. Abimelech is going to say as much as well. And so, students, if you want to understand the kind of immediate force and startling reality of meeting God in a dream as Abimelech does, and I mean this reverently, it's as though God comes to Abimelech and says, you are dead meat. You took a man's wife. Because you see, it's the language of taking that's the sin. She does not belong to you. You didn't get her. You weren't given her. You took her. And as you see, as the text continues, it's quite clear that Abimelech was quite hell-bent on sinning with Sarah. But verse 4, make sure right from the outset we understand that didn't happen. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So God is protecting the queen of the promise. We'll see later on it's something of a plague of reproductive dysfunction that's going on in Abimelech's house. But Abimelech now has this revelation from God and it gets to his protestation. Look at verse 5. Lord, will you kill innocent people? It sounds a lot like maybe something we saw at the end of chapter 18 with Abraham interceding for his family in Sodom. Will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? He goes on to say in verse 5, Did not he himself say to me, She's my sister and she herself. He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Christian, what you need to recognize here is what Abimelech is doing is calling on a category of sins that the Old Testament law later legislates. And it's a category known as unintentional sins that do require sacrifices, blood offerings to atone for their guilt. What Abimelech is saying here is, I didn't know it. Integrity of my heart, innocence of my hands, I didn't know it. And what we need to know is ignorance doesn't equal innocence. Because look, as God affirms the integrity, he affirms the ignorance, but he won't affirm the innocence as the text continues in verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Clearly, Abimelech was wanting to sin. Abimelech would have sinned if he had the opportunity, but God was restraining. 
the sin in Abimelech's life to protect his promise. I think about 10 years ago, I had something of a living pastoral example of this truth that God restrains sin. Our elders actually talked about it for quite a while after, so stunning and unexpected it was. There was a member in our church who was on a business trip in Las Vegas, and he was in a restaurant with a woman who wasn't his wife, clearly bent on sinning with that woman, when all of a sudden his pocket began to speak. Well, his phone was in his pocket. And speaking to him out of his pocket was his wife. Unintentionally, unexpectedly, frankly, undesirably in that moment. Somehow, in the mysterious providence of God, he had pocket dialed his wife, put her on speaker, and she started talking to him in the restaurant. And we thought to ourselves, God restrains sin. Didn't remove all guilt from what he was doing. But it certainly did save him from greater guilt that could have quickly come. And that's exactly what God is saying here to Abimelech. Look at verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die in all who are yours. It's, it's frankly an odd thing maybe to some of your ears to recognize God in this moment says, Abimelech, go to Abraham. He's a prophet. You need him to pray for you lest you die. Because you might come to this text and think, the one with all the stain of sin in this passage is Abraham, and it's actually Abimelech. Because the one who would intercede for another in the ancient culture of the Old Testament, that was the one who was wronged. So who's the one wronged in this passage? Not Abimelech. Abraham is wronged by Abimelech's sin. He needs the prophet of God to pray for him, to plead for him, that he might be restored, that he might be made whole. And there's a, something of a, of a type of Christ even going on in Abraham's life because we've seen in Genesis 14, Abraham function as a king. We've seen in Genesis 18, Abraham function as a priest. Here he is about to function as a prophet. This is what it takes not only for God to restrain sin but also restore people from their sin. I wonder when was the last time that God restrained sin in your life? Or perhaps more acute to this text, how often do you think God has restrained sin in your heart and you didn't even know it? How often has God restrained sin in another's heart against you and you didn't even know it? I hope you're encouraged by the powerful faithfulness of God to protect His people. As he restrains sin, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. So he gets all this information in the night dream. You see in verse 8, he wakes up first thing in the morning. He calls together a staff meeting in the house of Abimelech to unveil the new vision he's received in the night. God's about to kill us all because I took this man's wife. And look at the end of verse 8. And they were very much afraid. Old King James says, sore afraid. And so his protestation to the Lord now leads to his confrontation with Abraham. Look at verse 9 and following. He called Abraham to himself and asked him these series of questions. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? 
but you did this thing. So kids, you want to think about the fact he's just laid off in rapid fire succession, sent off. Three simple questions. What have I done to you? What have we done to you? Why would you do this to us? Why would you do this to me? The confrontation gets Abraham's explanation. Verse 11, I said, or Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And then he says, of course, in verse 12, well, she actually is my sister, half-sister. Some people, many preachers, will say, well, half-truth is a, is a whole lie in this passage, but that's not true in the ancient culture. She is his sister in a way that we often don't realize in our culture. He's been telling the truth in a way that might make us uncomfortable. And, verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Remember, Abraham is a sojourner, a wanderer, a pilgrim. He's going from place to place, for as best we can tell, north of 25 years from Genesis 12 on. Do you think those are the only two times that they engaged in this scheme? No way. We only know about it twice. It went bad twice. Maybe that means it was actually quite successful in the other places. Whatever it is, this is Abraham's explanation. She actually is my sister. I didn't think there was any morality in this land. I thought you were going to kill me. And by the way, we've been doing this for a long time. And it tends to go okay. Not that that actually makes it right, is it? Did not Abraham hear the word of God in Genesis 15? I am your shield. And what it seems like, Abraham's deceptive scheme is regularly taking up his shield in order to protect his family not relying on God's power of protection, so God intervenes here. Well, the explanation gets Abimelech's vindication. You see, he gives to Abraham and his family servants and silver, livestock and land. Look at verse 16, what he says, Abimelech to Sarah, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. The language there in Hebrew for vindicated is set right in a way that's according to the customs of the time Abimelech has showered these gifts on Abraham's family to say in the watching eyes of all especially those that are in Abraham's shakedom at the moment Sarah is pure she is honorable she is vindicated she is set right in other words from our perspective the promise is intact God protects his promise again. Sarah's now set right, but Abimelech has to get set right too, doesn't he? Which is why we get Abraham's intercession in verse 17 and 18. I do hope you have someone in your life that you can go to with prayer requests and trust that they will pray earnestly for whatever you ask them. That person in my family is my maternal grandmother. She's known as a prayer warrior in the family with diligence and vigilance and faithfulness. She prays for the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren to such a degree that my twin sister used to often say, if you want something, just ask Grandma Koonsman to pray for it. She always seems to get through. Abraham doesn't always seem to get through. He always gets through this friend of God. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And God also healed his wife and female slaves. So they bore children for the Lord had closed 
all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So I think we're right to see in this passage God's protective power in holding the promise intact meant something like reproductive dysfunction had fallen on the household of Abimelech. There were no children being born. There's no ability to bear children at this time. And what we're also meant to see acutely is that God is the Lord over the womb, isn't he? He alone opens the womb. He alone closes the womb. And of course, why that significant students think of this, because what are we getting ready to see? Just glance down a few verses. What he's going to do, Lord willing, as we study next week, is open the womb of promise in a miraculous way. Abimelech now set right because of Abraham's intercession. The promise remains intact because of God's protection, even though Abraham's deception put it in peril. Do you see the faithfulness of God to his covenant promise to his people? I came across this story recently. I love these missionary stories. And I came across one of an individual named Lori Anderson. It was the single woman who took the gospel of Christ to unreached people groups in the jungles of Peru in the 1940s. Wycliffe Bible translators were sending missionaries out into these areas that hadn't been reached with Jesus Christ. And so off they sinned. Lori Anderson to this people group in Peru that was led by the most fearsome headhunter in the land, Chief Tariri. And the story goes that she was one morning doing her devotions out by the river next to this jungle where this tribe was living. She was reading her Bible, and she began to pray, as many of us often do after reading the Bible, closing her eyes. And so she didn't see this giant anaconda slithering her way along that riverbed. The anaconda strikes, rears its head back to strike again. When against all expectation, it just keeps retreating until it slithers away and disappears. And Lori Anderson is rushed off to be cared for the snake bite. And the local witch doctor comes into the area where she's being cared for. And she says, I want you to know that my son, who is also a witch doctor in this tribe, prayed to the spirit of the anaconda to kill you today. But why didn't he? And of course, Lori Anderson could do nothing more than say, because God protects his people. Not every time in a situation like that, but we certainly see it in a text like ours in Genesis 20. God protects his people even when that most ancient serpent of old Satan is trying to devour the promise. God protects his people, his promise, his purpose yet again. So as we close, what I want to do is just ask a simple question. What does God's protection mean to you? What should it mean to you? First of all, God's protection increases our fear And I mean that in a genuine sense of fear, right? What God does is he comes to Abimelech in a dream and they're very sore afraid because they heard what God will do to protect his people. He will intervene. He will sovereignly overrule. He will even judge a people in order to protect his promise. We often speak of God's protection as a comforting reality, which we should, as we'll talk about in just a second. But nevertheless, we want to say it is a fearful reality to war against God. Perhaps maybe you are something like Abimelech and taking something from the promise that doesn't belong to you. Perhaps maybe you're like Abimelech and warring against God's people of promise in such a way that you're dividing them. Perhaps you're something like Abimelech 
And you think that your ignorance means you're innocent. And so potentially destroying God's promise. Understand God's protection means you ought to be very afraid. Because God will overwhelm and eventually defeat anyone who stands against him. But the good news, is it true also? Isn't it true also? God's protection increases our faith. Abimelech needed an intercessor to be set right with God. You too need an intercessor, a go-between, a mediator to be set right with God lest he kill you. I wonder who will speak for you. He needed Abraham. We need Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. As 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the good news of God's protection belongs to all. If you would but receive it, will you not receive God's faithfulness in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen to all of God's promises? Will you not receive God's protection in Christ Jesus, who alone can set you right with God, who alone can save you from the penalty your sin deserves? Will you not Come to Jesus Christ, who is even now the protector of his people, with faithfulness, gentleness, steadfastness, and kindness, working his promises to pass in their life. Great is God's faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are faithful to us. Even when we are faithless, you protect us. You are a strong tower, tower and refuge in every situation. In the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our weakness, that we can run to you and find your arms of love enveloping us in strength and sovereign kindness. Help us to know how great your faithfulness is as it dawns every morning on us. As the rising of the sun comes, so great is your faithfulness to your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's rise.